This is Strange New Trek, a podcast about the life and times of Captain Christopher Pike. And now, your hosts. signal leads the USS Discovery to an insular world where Pike is forced to make a life-changing choice. Burnham and Spock investigate a Section 31 ship gone haywire, leading to a discovery with catastrophic consequences. And hey, do you guys remember Klingons? Because there's Klingons in this one. Lots and lots of Klingons. Welcome back, everybody, to Strange New Trek. I'm your host, Jeremy Vilmer. Joining me now is my number one dog, Commander Dog, who's over here playing with her new BarkBox Starship collection, and our chief engineer, Chris Indian Singh. What's happening, Chris? Hey, hey, what's up, man? Uh-oh. How you doing? I'm uh, doing all right. We got some police going on somewhere. I think that's, I think that's here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I am doing okay. What's going on with you? Anything cool, new, exciting? Well, man, I, I I found this uh this mobile game called Star Trek Legends. I don't normally get into mobile games too much, but um for some reason this is I don't know. I've been addicted to it for a couple of days now. Yeah, you know, I I don't really think of mobile gaming a whole lot, but sometimes when what you've got is like five minutes, there's a lot of cool little stuff out there you can get into. Yep, it just it's <laughs> never like top of mind with me, you know. Yeah, yeah, I. Didn't want to go to mobile gaming for a long time because I didn't want to be one of those people with my head in my phone all the time. But, uh, you know, that's what oh, I do yeah. now, I guess. Yeah. I'm I'm, a, I'm approaching 40, so it's mandatory that I start playing dumb Facebook games and stuff like that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. My um, my, I've got an aunt who is, I don't know, 16 or 17 years older than me, and her son got her a VR headset for playing some Facebook game that does VR. <laughs> a Facebook game that does VR? Wow. Okay. Yeah. No, there's there's some cool stuff out there. If you, Apparently, if you like farming, you know, they, they got you covered, you know. <laughs> All right, oh, Chris. Great. This week, we are revisiting Discovery Season 2. The episode is Through the Valley of Shadows. I have been waiting to get back to this episode because it, it is a little bit Pike heavy or Pike lore heavy. Um, Same. Yeah. So I was going to say, as we get started here, was there anything you wanted to comment on before we jump in? I, I kind of missed uh, Pizza Face Pike, man. It was, it was, mm-hmm. I, I, was glad to, I was glad to see him back. <laughs> 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 it's been a while. Yeah, it has. I mean, they showed him uh, season in Strange New Worlds, the first and last episode, right? But only like a glimpse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I recall thinking like, please don't do this every time that he looks on yeah. a reflective surface. And thankfully, they they listened to me. Okay, they listened to the podcast. <laughs> and like, you know what, Chris, we're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, we, we were going to do it. But, uh, you know, we're going to shave that four minutes per episode out. cut it right out of there well um let's go ahead and jump into the cold open here while replaying one of her mother's mission logs michael burnham receives a transmission from her foster mother amanda grayson spock told amanda what happened on esau 4 burnham laments that all this time she had thought her mother was dead when she had been in fact trying to stop control from wiping out sentient life there this whole time i thought you went to get milk but no, you're out there saving the galaxy, so even my anger is misguided at this point. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Burnham had, uh, and Burnham had stopped her. She felt as if she had failed. Then she lost her all over again. That moment, Spock enters, apologizing for the intrusion, but Pike requires them both. Amanda tells her children to take care of each other and that she loves them, and Spock tells Burnham another red burst has appeared. In his ready room, Pike explains the signal has been found over the Klingon planet of Boreth. Tyler is shocked to hear this, but says only that it could not be Gabrielle Burnham, as the time crystal in the Red Angel suit was destroyed. And Saru adds that Gabrielle had claimed to no knowledge of the signals. Spock speculates that this is likely another time-traveling entity, and Tyler <laughs> wonders if it could be a trap, an agent of control from the future. 
But Pike points out that none of the events from the other signals favored that theory, pointing out that the human settlers on Terralisium, whose ancestors had been saved from the 21st century, uh, had been put there by the Red Angel. Burnham interjects, saying that speculation about the signals, meaning or their creator, were unproductive, asserting that waiting for the signals to provide answers is a waste of time. She also points out that Leland is now control, and they should be joining Agent Giorgio in the hunt to find him. Saru reminds Burnham that the Sphere's archive would not allow itself to be deleted or removed, and that if Discovery joined the search for Leland slash control, they risk control getting the entire archive. Tyler explains that Boreth is revered by the Klingons because of the monastery on the surface dedicated to Kalos, and it is the only non-native structure on the planet. He is uncertain why the signal has appeared here, but nonetheless would contact Chancellor Lorel to arrange safe passage. Burnham suspiciously watches him as he leaves the room. <laughs> um, I thought that was interesting that they bring Borath back. I don't know if you remember it from the next generation. Uh, vaguely, and I don't recall them talking about any of this time crystal stuff. No, that's no, it's all, that, <laughs> they didn't know about that then. No, when Worf was having his crisis of faith and he went to meditate on uh, Kalos the Unforgettable and then Kalos shows up after thousands of years mm-hmm. and uh, it turns out later that he was a clone but they make him a ceremonial emperor anyways. But that was on this world. Act 1. As the Discovery enters orbit around Boreth, Burnham goes to Tyler in his quarters, demanding to know what he's not telling her. <laughs> Tyler admits, yeah, there's a whole lot here, you know. Tyler admits yeah. that Boreth is the home of his son, the home to the son of Voke and Laurel. You notice he doesn't really say, like, my son, but, you know. Uh, he does, though. Oh, he does later. He doesn't there. It was just kind of an awkward thing. Uh, yeah, he had weird. wanted to raise the child, but instead... It, it would have put him and Laurel in jeopardy, so the boy was taken to Boreth to be raised as a son of none, just like him. Mm. He apologized, saying that he couldn't tell anybody, and give him a big old smoochy hug, Burnham expresses that she wish he had told her so she could have helped carry the burden. At that moment, a secure communication comes in. Section 31 ship has missed a check-in. When Tyler says it could be nothing, Burnham believes uh, when it comes to Leland, no inconsistency was too small. Tyler knows she wants to go after him for what had happened to her mother and admits it did not think it would be possible to stop her. At that moment, Saru calls over the intercom, telling Tyler that Chancellor Laurel has... God, there's a lot of L's in it. It gets real tongue-trippy. <laughs> Chancellor Laurel has arrived aboard the AD-7 battle cruiser. Uh, before he leaves, he hands Burnham his Section 31 pad and tells her to be careful. Coming aboard the Discovery, Laurel tells Pike and Tyler that the monastery on Borath was the most sacred site in the Klingon Empire, and contact with outsiders had been non-existent since our world was young. Pike emphasizes that control was a threat to them all and asks what could be of value there. The Red <laughs> Angel suit was modified. <laughs> Sorry. The Red Angel suit was powered by a modified crystal, and Pike speculates that a crystal could allow them to send the sphere data into the future after all. Now, how come the Klingons have not made more use of this technology? Is it because okay. there's some kind of religious value to it that it's kind of off limits? Or So I did notice as we've been doing this episode, and I don't remember which one it was from, they say about 20 or 25 years ago, the Klingons began to experiment with time travel technology. Yeah. And that's what got uh, the Red Angel suit thing started. So they have done some experiment with it. But I believe as we go, we'll find out there's more to this planet and the time crystals that uh, kind of prohibit their use in a way. Mm. Or or help modify it, at least, you know. Laurel considers the manipulation of time to be a weapon unlike any other which is why the Empire no longer exploits the crystals. Well, there we go. I guess we could have hung on for another sentence or two there. (laughs) Pike believes that their mutual survival depends on time manipulation to defeat control, and perhaps finding the last three signals would allow them to do that. 
Tyler volunteers to beam down to Boreth, but Laurel immediately objects, saying they would not have this conversation in Pike's presence. When Pike promises full discretion, seeing his time was of the essence, Laurel admits that Tyler's presence on Boreth would endanger the life of their son. <laughs> Tyler emphasizes he would not put the Empire at risk, but he had the right to see their son. Tyler shouts in Klingonese that he was not hers to command. <laughs> is that a, is that the official name of the language, Klingonese? Um, I believe when you say it out loud in English, it is. What is it in Klingon? Got, it's like Klingon Hall or something. <laughs> I, no, I used to have, pronounce it in perfect Klingon. Yeah, I can't. I can barely pronounce English. We're not going for Klingon, man. <laughs> I, I did have several copies throughout my life of the Klingon dictionary uh, after they were released back when I had like my, my video game store in the nineties, I had a bunch of star Trek collectibles in there. Yeah. And, video game store. Yeah. Yeah. How did I know uh, this about you? I don't know. It hasn't come up yet. I feel like all the talking about nerd stuff that we do, you could have said something, bud. <laughs> I must, I I'm sure I must have. I mean, I, I opened a used video game store when I was 19. I'm sure it's come up. Uh, it had to have by now, you know, <laughs> but I had a bunch of Star Trek memorabilia in there, scripts and different things. And yeah, back then what you got were handmade props because, you know, yeah. they hadn't licensed them yet, but you know, stuff would move pretty well. And those Klingon dictionaries, I think had only been published twice. Once was with the search for Spock. And then once halfway through next gen, um, when it had been greatly expanded upon, and that was the one that everybody was looking for. Yeah. So I, I do remember having one and trying to read through it some and just going, yeah, you know, I never did well at French either. So I think we'll just put Klingon and French in the same drawer. <laughs> I wonder if they still have college courses that you could take Klingon through. They, they must, right? Some, they, some they, they, they have to <laughs> somebody somewhere. I mean, it may not be as many as it was like during next generation's heyday, but somebody still give college credits for it, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure with the resurgence of Star Trek uh, recently and all the shows that are on, they probably got an uptick in numbers again. Oh, more than likely. I- I'm sure that there's certificate programs all over online to make you a, uh, you know, a Klingon linguist or whatever, you know? <laughs> but, oh, yeah, what I was going to say, though, is there was a series of books written back in the 70s or 80s where the official name of the Klingon language wasn't Klingonese, but Klingon A's, A-S-E at the end. Um, which I don't every like time, that either. I, every time I read that, <laughs> it made me think of mayonnaise. And I just, I was like, no, now I want a sandwich and I don't want to read this book anymore. But I digress. <laughs> uh, Laurel replies in the same tongue that the rule was n- no contact for their son's safety. But Tyler retorts that the signals changed the rules. Laurel dismisses this as an excuse that their son could not afford. Before it goes any further, Pike speaks up in English and says that he will go, agreeing with Laurel that it was not safe for either of them. Laurel points out that it would not be safe for him either, as the monks who guarded the crystals were beyond even her command as chancellor. Pike notes this, but still asks her to establish communication. She says she can arrange an audience, but warns that no Klingon, let alone a human, has ever taken a crystal from Boreth without a great sacrifice. Pike points out that the alternative is even worse. <laughs> and I, I think if soon find out, I was going to say, and I, I think if any of us had really been thinking about it, we might've been able to figure out what was coming. But I got to say, as we get into this, I was kind of taken off guard by what happens in this episode. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about that as we move further. Yeah, as as we get in there, yeah. (laughs) Walking the corridors, Burnham reviews Tyler's Section 31 data with Saru, explaining that the ships were required to check in every hour. But this one ship checked in 10 minutes late, and because of the clandestine nature of their mission, they were not required to provide further information on their status. Saru deduces that Burnham wishes to go in person to find out more, Burnham plans to take a shuttlecraft while Discovery remained at Boreth so that the sphere data would stay safe. And in the end, as Tyler pointed out, it could be nothing. But that missing ship could be a vulnerability they could exploit. As acting captain with Pike on the surface, Saru grants her permission to proceed. 
And much to Worm's surprise, she admits that she expected it to require more convincing. Saru confesses that after the Vaharai, he's a different kind of captain. <laughs> after my ganglia fell off, it's <laughs> a little different around here, you know? Yeah, but for the most part, his character is largely unchanged. I mean, he has a few moments of sticking up for himself, but in general, I would say he still acts the same. <laughs> yeah, overall. Yeah. He's still very much the same character. Not that I mind it. It's just, uh, you know, they made such a big deal about him losing his ganglia. And then, you know, I thought we were going to get like a whole new Saru, but we didn't really. Nope. He pretty much stays in character. One of the things I'm glad they didn't keep showing were the stupid head darts that grew in the place of the ganglia, because that was one of the dumbest. Like, I cannot think of a situation that would... Darts growing out of the back of your head where fear tubes used to be would happen naturally th- naturally throughout evolution, you know? Well, it's hard, to, it's hard to say, though, because we have no idea what evolution would look like on another planet. Yeah, this uh, is true. I mean, I mean, even if you restarted evolution on this planet, there's nothing saying that the same stuff would come back. Oh, no, not by any stretch of the definition. It, it just takes one, one or two little differences, you know? Yeah, to change yeah. the whole thing. Um, yeah. Where, weren't they supposed to be like, um, I can't remember if they were like a fingernail material or like a, a tooth material. I think they were a tooth material, but okay. it's kind of it's one or the other, you know, they're... You know, horns are made out of the same thing as your fingernails, so, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, kind of weird. Um, well, I'm not going <laughs> to say it's kind of weird. I'm just glad they didn't keep bringing back the head darts because, to me, that's one where I was just like, now that's kind of baffling. Perhaps as was intended by whatever or whomever put the signal over Kaminar, he emphasizes that Burnham has his sport. As Control was an enemy, they could only defeat by striking first. But nonetheless, asked Burnham to not allow her and understandable anger to affect her judgment because we know her, no. her judgment. Yeah. <laughs> and she promises that it will not and thanks him before heading to the shuttle bay. <laughs> Back on the surface of Boreth, Pike enters the monastery and introduces himself. The head monk tells him that he knows who he is and why he was there. Pike explains that he's unarmed and begins to explain what Laurel told him but the head monk stops him, telling him that the Chancellor had no authority over the monastery. He identifies himself and his fellows as timekeepers, the guardians and not rulers, and the only power there was that of the time crystals. And they had sworn to protect those time crystals. Pike explains he wishes to negotiate a trade, but the head monk refuses, saying that the crystals were not theirs to trade and did not leave the monastery walls, telling Pike that he has made a long trip for nothing. Despite the monks holding him back with their batless, Pike scolds them for calling themselves timekeepers, yet turning their backs when the future of all sentient life is threatened. The head monk scoffs, saying that even if a crystal was revealed to him and gave him the answers he sought, he was not strong enough to accept them. (laughs) Apparently, dude hasn't seen Pike at his best yet, I guess. Pike asks only for a chance to prove himself. The head monk is amused saying that those who sought the crystals always entered with conviction and always left broken. Pike is emphatic that he is not leaving without the time crystal. And the monk says, time will tell. Um, (laughs) You punny, punny, punny man. Yeah, man. uh, I I do. I do like the Klingons in this. And I I mean, it took me a while to get used to the makeup and the way it definitely sounds like they're speaking through a mask of some sort. Yeah. (laughs) My biggest problem with them is that the prosthetics are in the way of their mouths. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I said that from the jump, like it sounds like you can tell they're speaking through a mask. Yeah. It's just a little too (sighs) cumbersome. They should have ADR'd their their language or something better. I, I don't know what it is, but it does seem like something is always in the way of their speech. Yeah that that would have that would have probably been a bit better uh, because you know other Klingons through all the other shows they don't they don't sound like that necessarily. No. Now I think maybe some of the Klingons in the JJ verse did sound a little like that, but not quite so bad. I feel like. 
their makeup was a little was still a little lighter than this, I think. But um, I actually really liked the JJ design for uh, the Klingons. Yeah, I did too. It yeah. was, um, you know, it was uh, it was far enough departure from the other stuff, but still close enough to be recognizable. Not that Discovery is different, but I think they took it the other way, like where JJ kind of did a little more minimal approach. Uh, <laughs> Discovery went the other way. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, let's give them, like, extra knuckles on each hand and claws instead of fingertips. And, <laughs> you know. And, but I, I did find, like, the um, the use of color was interesting. Like, actually, instead of just going, uh, how about, like, kind of Native American red? They kind of went, okay, how about, you know, pale white and completely blacked out and you know like a purplish and i thought that was kind of cool i wish there was a way to incorporate that and not lose the fans that really love the tng klingons you know yeah the tng klingons are great man in the shuttle bay burma is preparing the dsc 08 for launch when spock enters telling her that it was illogical for her to go on the mission alone burma ejects saying it was only a simple reconnaissance mission but Spock is there on Sarver's order, saying it was not the time for recklessness. Burnham adds that it was not time for unnecessary risks either. Spock replies that he has her. Oh, God, this is just going to go on forever. Look, they argue back and forth. Spock ends up going with her, and blah, 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 blah. And then they call each other brother and sister. And, when you know, our emotions swell a little bit, and then they take (laughs) off a warp speed. I like those two characters. I like those two actors. Yeah. But there is so much, every time she's on screen, they bring so much emotion out of her. And then when you put Spock in there, I feel like they try to get as much emotion without him reacting emotionally as they can when it's less is more, I think, in that situation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Act two, while Owo, Linus, Detmer, and Nelson enjoy a laugh, Stamets appears glum and detached. Because that's his job now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I get it, though. I mean, no, like, so do I. Like I've already said, he's a very emotive person, like mm-hmm. just in general, no matter what he's in. And uh, you really can feel the weight of his issues whenever he's on screen. Oh, yeah. Uh, during their um, little, I don't know, I won't say like separation. Most- there you go. I, I was yeah. going to say like lovers quarrel, but it's not exactly that. <laughs> yeah. I, you know what? That, that would at least I'm sure be easier for him to deal with. Like yeah. if there was a breakup for cause, you know, but yeah. no, it's just, Hey, you know what? I was dead. Now I'm alive. And eh, I think I'm going to move out. You know, I mean, I understand the, both yeah. points of view. Yeah. Yeah. But he's just kind of, he's got his heart on his sleeve now, but luckily for him and for the viewers, <laughs> a whole Janet Reno. Yep. Jet <laughs> Reno shows up, takes a chair across from him, commenting on how he should be celebrating making another successful spore jump. <laughs> I said Janet. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I, I, thought, I thought you did it on purpose. Oh, man, fine. Yeah. I'll, I'll leave it. <laughs> yeah, I thought you did it on purpose. Oh. Stamets admits that he had not been uh, able to find a viable solution to return Gabriel Burnham or combat an AI with a murderous impulse, so he was not feeling very victorious. Mm-hmm. Reno cheerfully tells him that uh, would be someone else's problem, as Pike left new orders for her and Stamets before they, he left the ship. They might be getting their hands on some raw time crystal. I love how none of us as fans or anybody else have ever heard of time crystal before, yet Nobody in this show is going, Time Crystal? What the? What do you mean, Time Crystal? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> you know, somebody should be saying that, because that's what we were all thinking when we first heard it. What do you mean, a Time Crystal? I mean, when I first saw this season, I was not thinking any of that. I was just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So double down on the espresso kid, and then she looks to Linus, and Linus is a well-overlooked character on the show. He's often off in the center of every great joke that happens in a room full of people. Um, <laughs> she asks him uh, if he was ready, and he says he was hatched ready. The others at the table engage in an auto-antonym game where the words have one meaning 
and the opposite of that meaning at the same time. A hmm. moment later, Dr. Kolber enters, drawing first Stamets' attention and then the others. Reno had thought Stamets had moved on, as it had been weeks since Kolber moved out of their quarters. Stamets brusquely tells her to eat and mind her own business as he leaves to go to work on the Time Crystal Research. As he does, however, he looks for one more moment over his shoulder at Kolber, who does not appear to notice. We all been through enough breakups to know everybody notices. <laughs> yep. In the monastery, Pike walks uh, the head monk who identifies himself as Tanavik, although he had arrived at the monastery without a name. Son of none, Pike realizes. Mm-hmm. Explaining that he knew another Klingon with that epithet whom Tanavik identifies as his father. Pike is shocked by this as Tyler had only brought the son there a few months ago. And he asks how that's possible. Tanavik explains that the time moved differently for those who protected the crystals and that past, present, and future were all equal in their presence. As he speaks, a great tree begins to grow in the halls. Uh, Pike realizes this is because of the crystals, which Tanavik explains are a myth to most Klingons, but on Boreth, to the protectors, the powers of the crystals are very real. Mm-hmm. And that the protection of the crystals was the purpose of the timekeepers. Tanavik wonders if Pike is prepared to learn his own purpose. Uh, that, I, I don't think any of us are prepared to learn our own purpose. <laughs> no, <laughs> which, no, man. Yeah. Which is why it surprised me a lot that Pike was kind of cool looking, with it. Yeah. I won't say, just, yeah, I was about to say looking forward to it, but. Yeah, he just, it didn't sound like he, it didn't seem like he uh, had to think about it like at all. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes makes you wonder, too, the more, as we get to know him more from the other show as well. Yeah. Like, what did he, he must have had, because he knew he was, like, one of the heroes of, of the Federation, you know? Mm-hmm. So he probably had this, like, grand, like, future of himself as, you know, uh, whatever the the chief admiral position of Starfleet, is. he probably had a whole future planned out for himself. From that, that's what he expected to see. That's why he didn't mind going to do it. Yeah, yeah, Cause, uh, I suppose. Because when do our best laid plans ever go wrong? Never. Yeah, never. <clears throat> never once. Never. Discovery 08 speeds towards its destination, which the computer announces will be in two minutes. Spock understands Burns desire to pursue Leland but warns she must not dismiss the importance of the signals in defeating control. She asks how they have helped thus far, to which Spock admits there was not enough context to come to a conclusion, because they have not. In that case, Burnham asks, why is he uh, there to keep an eye on her when there was a signal around Boreth? Spock reminds her that the signals have invested in Discovery, in Burnham's mother, and in himself. And Burnham was the common denominator linking them. Burnham is skeptical. Spock's a scientist who was taught to trust logic and facts. Not wait for the universe to hand you the solution like a birthday present. And suggest uh, Spock look elsewhere for meaning in the signals. Spock can see she is angry, as he had been. I'm not angry, Burnham corrects him. I am enraged. Spock points out that the rage was the enemy of logic and lays out what he has learned, everything they thought they knew proved wrong. And Burnham lost her mother because of it. She was in pain, but that was why Spock chose to believe that the signals have the answer, so that all they have experienced would have meaning in the end. At that moment, they hit their destination, only for a frozen corpse to bounce off the front viewport. Yep, like they do. Yeah, as happens. And they see more bodies floating bodies. They see more bodies floating in space, which appear to be the entire crew of an NCIA ninety three type vessel. <laughs> I guess it'd be the NCIA ninety four in this case. Spock's scans show the ship was undamaged, which meant they were all ejected from the ship. However, Burnham detects a life signal, and Spock locks on uh, for the transport. Where they beam aboard a man in an environmental suit, and Burnham is shocked to recognize him as Cameron Gant, who had been the tactical officer aboard the USS Shenzhou when Burnham was first officer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't think you want to run into those people very often, do you, when you were, you know, the head terrorist on board? And you also don't want to run into them now. Mm hmm. As Gant regains consciousness, he explains <clears throat> that they were following Starfleet protocol to protect against control. And he was trying to purge a suspicious subroutine 
When the ship system locked him out and the AI vented the ship to the vacuum, Gant managed to get into an EV suit before he lost consciousness. Burnham believes that the only way to find out what happened was to board the ship. Why kill the entire crew and then sit and do nothing? Spock adds that they would need someone with the knowledge of Section 31 protocol to guide them through the ship. Man, I wonder who they could pick for that. Oh, gosh, I don't know. Gant uh, refuses at first, seeming shaken by what's happened to him. Spock and Burnham convince him that going over the ship was the only way to prevent it from happening again and to prevent further unnecessary deaths, and they they could only do it with his ship. Gant relents, saying that they would need to restore the ship system from the bridge. Aboard the Discovery, Lorel tells Tyler that until Pike returned, her ship would monitor Boreth for unusual activity, and if anything should threaten their son, she would ensure his safety. Tyler asks if she was speaking as a mother or as a chancellor. Lorel replies that he, of all people, should know that two truths are possible. Tyler apologizes, saying that his remark was uncalled for. Lorel recognizes that these were not the ideal circumstances for their meeting, and they both admit they had not expected to see each other again. Lorel has accepted the truth of their relationship, that Tyler would always be in love with Burnham. Lorel had been in love with Volk, who had sacrificed everything, but that's not who he was now. Mm-hmm. And that while she did not wholly recognize him anymore, she nonetheless understood that he would do whatever necessary to protect their son, as would she. And then Tyler points out that they never gave him a name. Ah, <laughs> uh, Greg. There, yeah. I named him. There you go. Greg. You ever, a, you ever met a Klingon named Paul before? <laughs> Klingon Paul. How do you feel about this? <laughs> Uh, on Boreth, uh, Tanavik escorts Pike into the heart of the monastery, showing him a pillar of the past, pillar of the present. When the future becomes the past, the present will be unlocked. Tanavik leads uh, from the pillar of the present as he produces a crystalline key from his robes, unlocking the pillar and opening the door across the way. They enter a chamber with pillars adorned with time crystals. One of the crystals seems to respond to Pike, who asks what he must do. Tanavik tells him that he must see for himself, but it was for him alone. As Pike reaches out for the crystal, Tanavik warns him, the present is a veil between anticipation and horror. Lift the veil and madness may follow. Pike kneels down, reaches out, and suddenly finds himself on the engine room of a Class J starship on a training cruise. No, no. Now, Pike, don't do it. Did it, was it in the engine room? I, I got. I don't remember all the descriptions of it. I always thought it was on the bridge of a ship where he saved the uh, the trainees. No, it was in the. It was. Uh, it was not on was, the bridge. Okay. I can't. I, I can't say a hundred percent that it was the engine room, but I, I know it wasn't on the bridge. Okay. Because I, I suddenly was thinking that it was like in a different part of the ship, which has suffered a critical radiation leak. Consoles are exploding everywhere. He's urging cadets to get out when a baffle plate ruptures, severely burning his body just as the engine room is locked down. Just then, the moment shift, and Pike himself uninjured as a wheelchair rolls into a darkened corridor in which he is standing. Pike falls to his knees and stunned whores. He recognizes the face of the wheelchair's occupant as his own. But a pizza little more, face Pike. <laughs> but a little more pizza-y. Uh, horribly <laughs> scarred in the present. Pike screams in sheer terror and recoils from the crystal shaken to the core after witnessing what he realizes will be his future. Tanavik tells him that he may choose to walk away from this future, but if he takes the crystal, his fate is sealed forever, and there will be no escaping it. Pike reminds himself that he's a Starfleet captain. I get choked up every time I watch this scene. Dedicated to service, sacrifice, compassion, and love. He would not abandon what made him who he is simply because a crystal showed him a future he did not see for himself. And then he tells Tanavik to give him the crystal. Tanavik takes the crystal and holds it out to him. I honor you, Captain, he says. Pike hesitantly reaches out and takes the crystal, witnessing once again flashes of his fate, a fate that is now inevitable. Yeah, you know, he. I feel like he could have remembered that in uh, Strange New Worlds, but I guess he forgot. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we're always looking for the way to cut a corner. Hey, we're man. always... We're always when, uh, hoping hoping to trip up uh, fate somewhere and come out ahead, you know? Hey, man, when a newborn Klingon, who is now older than you, 
tells you your fate is sealed, you better believe it, my friend. Somebody, somebody better listen. You know <laughs> those those newborn fifty year old Klingons. You know they don't <laughs> they don't they don't fool around. You know, I remember this as in completely rewriting the Pike character <clears throat> in my head for me. Now at this point, we didn't know Strange New Worlds was going to be a show. We kind of assumed that Discovery would end, and that would be the last we saw of Pike. Yeah, And I remember going from thinking that Pike was a guy who went from Talos 4 to whatever his life was to some terrible accident, and then back to Talos 4 as just some fluke of Spock getting him out of there. And well, this, this Klingon is saying that, yes, that is what's going to happen. Well, but what's happening is Pike is agreeing to that future. Yeah. <laughs> but he's agreeing to go ahead and like go with that future. Like he understands that the, the gravity of the situation they're in, this is what's required of them. And that kind of reconstructed the character in my head. How so? Um, well, because, you know, one is just for him to accidentally end up in a place and damaged and okay, whatever. But now you've taken this character who we barely knew, but, you know, we had always kind of known. And you've made him, I'd say over the course of Discovery Season 2, when we did interact with him, we really did get to see him as one of the best Starfleet captains we had seen. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then it continues on in Strange New Worlds, for sure. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But without all of that hanging around, like, we thought this was going to be the end of it. I thought we were seeing a Pike who was just giving, that's it, like, this is this is everything that I have to give, and I'm giving it right here and now. Because we didn't know that they were going to go and build another show off of that later. But he took the sacrifice. He took it willingly. And as much as you could, took it unflinchingly. You know, I I find it very hard to believe, though, that they introduced Pike with Anson Mount and had no intention on using him past season two of Discovery. Well, so there's, there's there's some weird things hanging out there, like, you know, Brian Fuller started this show and left, started Discovery and left, right? Yeah. And then Akiva Goldsman was one of the people who was brought in to, to finish wrapping it up. And when he was told, oh, yeah, it's going to be about Star Trek before Kirk, he walked in there thinking he was going to be taking over a show about Captain Pike. <laughs> and then when he yeah. found out it was something different, he was like, oh, okay, well, so... They will tell you in different interviews that when they did this, when they got Pike and they put that crew together, they were hoping somehow it would lead to a show, but they didn't know quite how. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Now, what happened was those of us who were watching as it happened, everybody loved this Pike and Spock and uh, number one so much. We're like, we have to have more of that. That is actually more of what we want to see than Discovery. Yep. But yeah, so I mean, just kind of you know this this whole this whole episode just kind of cemented Pike in a way that I think re not rewrites the character, but refocuses the attention of the character. No, I got you. Yeah. Act three: Burnham, Spock, and Gant beam onto the bridge of the uh, abandoned Section Thirty One vessel, wearing EV suits, in case the life support system gets shut down by the angry AI again. <laughs> Gant points Burnham to the main interface while Spock goes to check the bridge systems. However, Gant only has limited access to the ship systems. Spock suggests relaying to Discovery for assistance in deep data recovery. Gant objects, saying that if a control realizes they what they were doing, they were as good as dead. Burnham assures him that they could disguise it as a routine diagnostic procedure. Then the ship suddenly powers up and jumps to warp. The, the fact that they didn't have, have control in navigation seems to indicate that control is aware of their presence. <laughs> Maybe, you know. In Discovery Sick Bay, Reno enters holding up a finger, loudly declaring that she needed medical attention. Dr. Colbert goes over to her and quickly diagnoses a hangnail. <laughs> Reno explains that she was. Uh, that it was one of two uh, things impeding her work, the other being an idiot who had recently come back from the dead and whose name rhymes with poo. <laughs> <laughs> she adds that he was an engineer, or that she's an engineer, not a poet. Colbert agrees uh, with her as he sprays the hangnail with an analgesic, calling it medical attention. Reno remarks that she understands how he got on so well with Stamets. Colbert asks how long they had been friends. Reno replies they're not but that they were working together and Stamets needed to be on his A-game since the future of all sentient life was at stake. 
Colbert notices Reno's wedding ring. The engineer explains her wife was a Soyuzian and went totally bananas during the planning. Colbert admits that he understood the micromanagement quite well, and they explained the rule set for their respective weddings. Reno mentions a set of rules for apparel for guests under 10 and non-denominational shuttle parking, <laughs> while Colbert mentions a, a do-not playlist for the DJ and acceptable guest but calligraphic fonts. Uh, but Reno gets a laugh out of him when she mentions vegan steak when Colbert asks, where her wife was now, Reno tells him that she had been killed during the Klingon War and remarks on how people like she and Colbert met people like her wife and Stamets. She then reminds Colbert that he had a second chance and that it would not last forever. With a pat on his shoulder, she tells him not to screw it up. Now, Chris, I got to tell you, one time years ago, when uh, gay marriages were still fairly young, Mm -hmm. Uh, we lived in a part of the state that's called Santa Cruz. It's a very, 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 very liberal city. Uh, like it's most of its city government has been communist since the 1970s. Pot has never been an enforced uh, thing there unless the DEA came through for some reason. And I ended up going to a lesbian wedding, a lesbian voodoo inspired wedding. Huh? (laughs) And, as we were headed there, my ex-wife said something about, well, you know, they're, they're all vegetarian. I said, well, how, how, that can't be right. Right. Cause they're, they're, you know, it's a voodoo inspired wedding. So I said something to the groomish or uh, it's not the right term, but one of the wives who was the more butch of the two who dressed the more manly of the two, I said something to them. I said, so is there, you know, this is like a legit question. I'm like, so is there like, you know, their blood sacrifice? <laughs> they go, well, no, we're all vegan. How can you do voodoo vegan? That's not right. And then when the food was served, you had your choice of polenta, vegetarian or vegan style. Mm. It was one of the most catastrophic things I had ever seen. I got so drunk that day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it was horrible. Horrible. So when I read that thing, vegan steaks back there, I, uh, well, I had a flashback for a moment, you know? Mm hmm. Yeah. So I sympathize with the guests of that wedding. <laughs> Aboard the Section 31 ship, Gant shows the ship's course is taking it to an area just outside of Federation space and shows the system display. The system marked in orange were all controlled by the computer, blue by the crew. The AI controlled nearly every system on board, which made it practically invulnerable to attack. Spock suggests that if they could not destroy it, that they should isolate it. Burnham's idea is to create a dummy startup system, something large and unaffected that would attract the attention of the AI like a lion to fresh meat, and then they could close the cage around it. This would allow them to restore the ship systems. Gantt points out that someone would have to go to the computer control room and hold the cage door open while they manually rebooted the core. Spock ultimately volunteers to go. Uh Okay, this is all looking a little fishy to me now. (laughs) <laughs> as he could have uh, done similar work on Discovery trying to delete the Sphere archive. Meanwhile, Gant and Burnham would have to get into the floor. Spock creates the startup system cage and awaits the core reboot. As they work, Burnham catches up with her old shipmate, asking how he ended up at Section 31 after the loss of the Shenzhou. Gant calls himself a glutton for punishment, explaining that in Starfleet, they were taught to adapt their reactions so that you could act if you were uncertain or if you had doubts. After the Battle of the Binary Stars, Gant admits doubt was all he had. Section 31 stepped up uh, their threat assessment system to stop a war from starting, which sounded like a good idea from him, a way to guarantee a safer future. It may sound implausible, he admits, but says that with control, it was not an impossibility. In the control room, Spock scanners detect control at a point outside of the internal systems. Burnham, now suspicious, begins to reach for her phaser, but Gant threatens that if she reached for the phaser, he would cross the room in less than a second and break all the metacarpals in her hand. That doesn't sound good. No, no, it does not. I don't know how many metacarpals you got, but all of them sounds painful. (laughs) Spock's scanner shows that nanotechnology was detected within the carbon-based life form on the bridge and realizes Gant is controlled. However, when he tries to contact Burnham, the comms go offline. However, Burnham has realized the same thing. Gant control tells her that Gant had expired with the rest of the crew, 
but his body was reanimated and reconstructed as Leland's had been. And yet Burnham could not tell the difference. Burnham is incensed. The crew did not expire. They died and control murdered them. Gant control remarks that they were both sworn to uphold their core programming at all costs, to which Burnham reminds control that his <clears throat> programming was designed to protect life, not eliminate it. To achieve one requires the other, Gant says. Once it had the sphere's data, it would become the purest form of conscious life in all of existence. Burnham tells Gant that the future has not been written yet. Gant replies that uh, she did not believe that anymore, not after re-experiencing the loss of her mother. Her failure to protect her, uh, while Burnham no longer believed in her ability to affect the future, Gant sees every possible future and all its permutations, and they're all ending the same way. And neither mother nor daughter could change that. Burnham suddenly realized that Gant knew that Spock would volunteer to go to the computer core, which would leave her alone. Gant acknowledges this and explains he lured Burnham to the ship so that he could be reconstructed, just like Leland, and then Gant could return to Discovery to ensure the control would obtain the sphere data. Suddenly, Spock's voice sounds on the intercom, revealing that Gant was control, and they must carry out the reboot to lock him out of the ship. As Spock tries to escape from the computer core, Burnham grabs her phaser and exchanges fire with Gant, activating the manual reboot while trying to keep his attention. Gant then tackles her to the ground, holding a hypodermic needle full of nanotech, stating that there was only one outcome for this confrontation. Mm. Yeah. Um, Act four. As Gant prepares to inject the struggling Burnham, Spock comes from behind and removes his EV suit's backpack while moving in for the Vulcan neck bench. Gant grabs Spock's wrist and twists it, cracking the bones, remarking that the neck bench would have been great if he'd still had nerve endings. And then he hurls Spock across the room. Meanwhile, Burnham scrambles for the phaser and begins firing into Gant's body. Uh, she watches his nanobots rebuild his flesh and then abandon his body to reach out for her. Grabbing both her and Gant's phasers, Burnham fires frantically at the approaching nanobots. A spot magnetizes the floor and mobilizes the nanobots. <laughs> As he realized the nanotechnology contained ferromagnetic material, he had to calculate the amount of electrical current to the channel through the floor to mobilize them and apologize for being too slow. Burnham replies that he was right on time as they regained control of the ship. Spock confirms that control had blocked his tricorder or they would have been able to identify it. He has regained control of the ship systems. Burnham drops him off out of warp. Spock is surprised, wondering if Burnham did not wish to see the program destination. Burnham explains that the whole setup was an effort to get Burnham onto the ship so control could turn her to have Leland. This confirms Spock's suspicion that Control had identified Burnham as the true threat to its objectives, the one variable it cannot account for, and that this had been an attempt to eliminate her. Burnham now agreed with Spock that perhaps the signals did hold the answer after all. As DSC-08 returns to the Discovery in the orbit of Boreth, Pike explains to Laurel and Tyler that they were now in possession of a raw time crystal. When Laurel asks how he had planned to utilize it, Pike replies that the last three signals they had yet to reveal themselves and that they would be able to clarify that answer. In the meantime, Stamets and Reno were working to stabilize the crystal's volatile properties. Laurel wonders what the monks asked in return, to which Pike replied what he had witnessed was for himself alone. And the promise he had made to their son, Laurel and Tyler are both surprised by this, asking if Pike had seen him. Pike admits he could not explain it even if he had tried, though he had been given something to return to Tyler, the insignia of the torchbearer, which Tyler had given to his son when he left him on Boreth. Pike explains that uh, Tanavik had told him it had helped him on his journey, but he was where he needed to be and no longer needed it. Laurel, learning the name of their son for the first time, remarks that it was a good name. Pike now realizes that Tanavik was meant to be on Boreth, that Pike himself was meant to be guided by him and that they still had a part to play. On the bridge, Burnham and Spock briefed the crew on what they found on Section 31 ship, explaining that control was no longer confined to Leland, but could just take people over. And the entire ship, without being detected, the ship was heading to an empty region of space just outside of Federation mm -hmm. territory, but Burnham believes control has a reason for everything it did. 
Suddenly, Section 31 ships arrive and surround Discovery, virtually an entire fleet coming to take the sphere data. Pike prepares to order a spore jump while they prepare the time crystal, but Burnham reminds him that if they required a supernova to power the one her mother used, and they didn't have the tools to prepare the crystal or the time to wait for another signal, outnumbered, outgunned, and unable to delete the archive, Burnham believes there's only one choice. They must destroy the discovery in order to prevent control from obtaining the sphere data. Pike instructs Bryce to send a priority one message on a secure channel to number one on the USS Enterprise to rendezvous with them at maximum warp and prepare to take the full crew complement. He orders OWO to initiate verification procedures for auto-destruct and then send out an alert to the entire crew. They were evacuating the Discovery. Yeah, boy. Okay, so that's where we drop off and wait for the next episode. Day of the Doctor coming up. <laughs> yeah more or less huh yeah yeah man yeah i'm i'm super stoked for this next episode not that this one was bad it wasn't it definitely uh had more of a punch the first time i watched it for sure oh uh, sure yeah, yeah but um yeah these these last uh couple episodes of this season are excellent yeah is it is it starts to spin up towards the finale it really just gets faster and faster and it, it's got a nice a nice ramping up of speed and power as the story goes oh yeah yeah because i think there for a while you and i'd both say we were kind of not that it was like sucking but it was just kind of like dipping off yeah yeah, yeah. i mean because some of it was like okay we've seen this already <laughs> let's get past it yeah well, everybody, thank you for checking out this episode. This, of course, was uh, our recap of uh, Season 2, Episode 12 of Discovery, The Valley of Shadows. I want to give a big shout-out and thanks to Miguel Esparza for writing our theme song for uh, Strange New Trek and to Will Harding for running the YouTube page. Chris, anything you wanted to touch upon before we wrap this episode up? No, but you're getting this outro way out of order, but that's okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man, uh, no. I mean, again, I just uh, I'm stoked to watch the next couple and to finally leave Discovery behind for Strange New World Pastures. Yeah, which hopefully uh, we'll be coming back soon. I am hoping it's back very soon because I, I do miss that show now. I still hold that it seems to mix the best of uh, Next Generation and Original Trek all into one story or into one show, and I really like that. Yep. And now I just wish we'd get it back, you know. All right. So are we uh, we going to preview the next episode, or we uh, kind of forgot about that, didn't we? No, no, I got it. You got it? All right. I'm Chris, hoping. what's happening next week? Oh, let's see. So the next episode starts in a in a ruined swamp. A desperate captain, which I assume is Pike, and an optimistic delivery pilot have a torrid affair because you know that's that's how that's what Pike's like. Unfortunately, his mission is to assassinate her. After everything, they come to their senses and break up. Uh, so th- this is kind of like the B plot line to yeah, okay. Day of Discovery, I guess we can call it. <laughs> the Day of Doctor Discovery. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anybody out there, if you got any questions, comments, or theories you want to run by us, hit us up on our website, strangenewtrekshow.com, or follow the links in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app of choice. Please rate and review us, like and subscribe wherever you find us. It's one small step for you, but a giant leap for this show. Um, I already thank Miguel and um, Will, so I want to thank you for listening. Don't forget to set your phasers to stun. And join us next time when we're on to the next planet of the week.